I, I'm always shocked at what people are offended by. And there's a line that I like, I, I know I shouldn't be offended or shocked. You see culture thing? Because <laughs> I'm generally pro trying to treat people with respect and dignity and use language that feels inclusive, even if maybe certain people don't find a problem in it. What? That seems crazy. <laughs> see, even that language. I don't use crazy as a pejorative. I've been trying so hard. So a friend of mine works for um, Canada Mental Health. And she talked yeah. about that's one easy thing that we can all do is stop using crazy or insane as ways to describe like unusual situations. And I am so bad for that. You know what? I've got a real fun thing. What? Let's make it a, let's make it a dork matter saying we don't use crazy as a pejorative. Listeners, if you catch us, send us a message and we will donate, I don't know, 10 bucks a piece yeah. to uh, Canada Mental Health. Yes, that is a great idea. I love that, Ben. So you guys help, I mean, obviously I'm not trying to download our responsibility for you no. know, changing our language and being responsible onto the listeners, but you can make us pay. Make us make pay. Make us pay when we screw up. I don't know if anybody else does this. I do this so bad, but every single time I go out with my friend who works for Canada Mental Health, it's so, I'm so aware of it that sometimes it's all I can say. Like, I'll just say all of like, that was so crazy. Wasn't that insane how all those crazy people thought those insane things? And then I'm like, what is wrong with me? And I don't know why. <laughs> Selective Tourette. Yes. Wait. Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry. Uh, this sounds like a very interesting friend that we should talk to on an episode. She sometime. is so I would love smart. To talk about mental health. Yes, she is brilliant. And she has done so many great presentations that I've watched over the years um, about mental health and stigmatization of mental health and how we're doing better, but there's still a lot of ground to make up for um, in that whole realm of the world, Ben. I think it would be great to chat and just get a list of things that we could do better and, and just throw that out to, there to listeners as like a FYI, let's yep. let's all be better. When, when you know better, you do better. Isn't that wild? Just, uh, you know, we can all just try to do things better. It's not a big deal. Be nice to people. Well, okay, let's not go too far. See, this is smile. This is no, don't tell people to smile. No, we don't do that. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't realize. Yeah, sorry. Walking down the street, no smiling, just finds every single person and tells them to smile. You'd look prettier if you smiled. This is one of the I had someone say that to me once for real, and I was shocked. I was like, in this day and age, um, recently when I was younger, it happened a lot. Like, recently, a little away from don't tell people to smile. That's good. Yeah. I think that they were so caught off guard by it too that the look on this person's face, they were kind of like, oh, yeah, I just said that. I'm like, Whoops. yeah, you did. Whoops. Uh, you mentioned something which was be nice to people. And my, my, my sort of hesitance there is that I believe in humanity. I believe in the betterment of humanity. I believe in dignity and respect for everybody. I'm a misanthrope though. And I do not like people on an individual basis, largely speaking. Like I like you and I respect you over yeah. there. No, I want the best for you. I believe you deserve a living wage and uh, accommodations and dignity in, uh, you know, your existence in society and respect and just being treated like a human being. I personally don't want to have any sort of one-on-one -on -one kindness interaction. I just want to be left alone. I'm very much like the Hulk. I just want to be left alone. Just, just leave me alone. 
No. No. You like okay. people. I like you, people. Well, sometimes. You sometimes, yeah. I certainly don't like being told to smile. Uh, I certainly don't. Does that happen to you often? Oh, sure. Do people yeah. like really? No. Yeah, yeah. It's usually other other oh. white dudes, like old old ones. Like, hey, smile. It's a nice day. Like, Ugh. okay. You don't know what's going no. on with me. Not much. It's all pretty good. I guess I should smile. This might be the dumbest, <laughs> the dumbest things, the dumbest you, no. string of things that I've said ever. No. No. I've We've said, said other dumb things. I meant me <laughs> specifically. This is Dork Matters. Here's our theme song. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dork Matters. Uh, it's a show about everything that matters to dorks. And uh, I am your dad dork host, Ben Wrinkle, and my co-host with the most. I've been thinking about this one. I am your challenged. No, that sounds weird. I take that one back. It does sound weird. I was going to say, like, make it like I'm a challenging person. Like, no. Well, Jess, if you want to just take all that nope, one leave out. That in. Ah, crap. Um, I am Lexi Hunt, your reader extraordinaire. Eh? Dork. Dork. I love books. As I've said on the show before, books are my friends. I love them. There's a reason we keep coming back to books. If I had my way, I'd burn them all. (laughs) I'm joking. I also love reading. Um, And we're actually here to talk about banned books. What better intro to that uh, as uh, certain political groups and uh, leanings uh, attempt to censor and remove education and information all across our fine continent. Mm-hmm. Um, don't do it. Um, don't do it. We're going to chat a little bit about uh, sort of the idea of censorship. Um, and then at the back half of this uh, episode, we've we've got a special guest, uh, Ryan Estrada, who is a comic book writer and cartoonist and uh, a lot of other things. Um, And we get to have a great discussion with uh, him about uh, some books that he's worked on, specifically one called Band Book Club uh, that he co-wrote with his partner uh, about their experiences uh, under a dictatorship in in South Korea, Korea in the 1980s, which should blow your mind. Yeah early 1980s it was compelling as hell it was i loved that book like there was one part that i got a little bit emotional at and i was reading it on my lunch break and i came back and i was in a meeting and someone was like are you okay and i was like i've just been reading this graphic novel about banned books and i've even wrote it down here in my notes i really liked and ryan mentions it in the interview there's two parts like there was one part where one of the characters talks about the importance of reading banned books and propaganda because they say reading this will help me uh, spot the same lies when they come out of the mouths of our politicians and so being able to recognize propaganda even when it's from quote unquote like your side is so important and it 
a big part of holding people accountable is knowing what other people have said in the past, even when it's challenging and, you know, seen as bad. But there was that part. And then there's one, I don't want to give away the book because it is great. And everyone listening, please go out, get it, read it. Um, There's just one of the characters does something. And all he says is, if no one else is going to help me, I'll do it alone. And he takes a stand. And I was just like, (gasps) oh, it was so good. I loved it. It was uh, a compelling read. I read it in between tantrums of my toddler. Um, <laughs> it was it was great, and it was educating and enlightening, but also very compelling, very easy to just like roll along with that story. And then, mm-hmm. as Ryan confirms, you know, this is this is what his his partner went through in their life, and that's wild. Yeah. That's just. It's something to consider uh, when we think about what we're protesting nowadays and what is worthy of, you know, public disobedience on mass. And uh, we might be a little off the mark lately with uh, certain certain yeah. movements. But then totally on the mark with other protests. Like if you're out there right now protesting um, Russian government impacting Ukraine, that's a good thing. Russian government, Putin, all of that. Nice. You got those key words in. We're going to get onslaught of bots. <laughs> Perfect. Great. The Russian bots are coming. Oh, um, but that's the thing about banned books. And that's what I was saying um, when we were talking with Ryan. I'm really challenged by, so for example, Lolita. I think the concept of Lolita is disgusting. However, it is like it's a okay well give us a little rundown on what the concept of lolita actually is so i think a lot of us know but you know there's some people that (laughs) don't have the sort of i don't know what you want to call it cole's notes or liner note version back of the book blurb and no matter what i say i know someone out there will be like that's just you know not the full essence of it but my understanding of the story of lolita is it's written from the perspective of an older man so i think he's like in his 40s or something um and his love affair with a child Um, So I I think Lolita, the character in the book, is like 12, like 11, 10, 12, something like that. Um, And they basically are running across the country together. And the entire book is kind of a love story between the two of them. And then Lolita gets older and moves away and moves on from this man in her life. And I've not read it because I struggle. Like, I don't feel comfortable with that concept. But friends of mine who have read it said, it is a really great example of beautiful structure. And the like when we talk about the essence of writing and beautifully written prose, Lolita is a really wonderful example of that. So if you can look kind of past like the icky underlying motive and themes, it's a beautiful book. But I struggle with that. However, do I think the book should be banned? No. But I think it's gross time for everybody's favorite most pedantic part of the show jess has a correction uh so i just wanted to say lolita is really fucked up novel um but jamie loftus just did an amazing podcast series last year that does a deep dive into the Lolita novel versus like the cultural currency of what we all conceptually know as Lolita, which Lexi banged right on the head. That's exactly what we all think of when we think of Lolita. Um, But actually there's a lot more nuance to it than that. And that's what Jamie Loftus looks at in this podcast series about 
um, how Lolita is actually a name that the unreliable narrator Humbert Humbert gives to a 12-year-old girl named Dolores when he abducts her and then um, abuses her. So yeah, just to clarify, uh, the book is really messed up, so don't read it if you don't feel like reading about something that is that messed up. It is really beautiful because Nabokov is an amazing writer. Um, but yeah, don't read the book. Just listen to the podcast. Don't read books. Just listen to podcasts is producer Jess's advice. Just kidding. I don't believe that. I have an English degree. Clearly, I think books matter. Um, but yeah, anyway pedantic sidestep over Lolita podcast by Jamie Loftus. Check it out if you want to learn more about Lolita. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, back to the actual show. And uh, as far as we can tell, and somebody can correct us if we're wrong, uh, Canada doesn't currently ban books from our understanding. It's weirdly difficult to find a clear answer mm -hmm. on this. Um, I did find a really interesting sort of... Um, sort of summary of the practice of censorship in Canada um, from Wikipedia, uh, weirdly enough. But uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it here. Over the 20th century, legal standards for censorship in Canada shifted from a strong sort of state-centered practice intended to protect the community from perceived social degradation to a more decentralized form of censorship often instigated by societal groups invoking state support to restrict the public expression of political and ideological opponents. And if that doesn't sort of ring true for what, what we see are uh, as sort of like the current attempts at censorship in, in North America, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what does it's, it's chillingly accurate and, and concise. Yeah. That censorship as I know it now, it's just a bunch of different, groups lobbying the government to ban shit that they don't like personally well do you ever wonder are we so like so I, I watched this um i don't know a video on reddit of people being asked in the streets of moscow what they thought of what's happening in the ukraine right now and people were either very like yeah just putin's great and i think he's a good guy or they were like what what's happening and then I thought, like, man, they're just living their lives and they don't know what's happening, theoretically. Are we so propaganda? Like, are we living in a bubble? Is something crazy happening? And other people in the world are like, we got to save those Canadians from their shitty government. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do the uh, alarm. Ah! Crazy as a pejorative alarm. Okay, there's one. We're working it out in real time. There's ten. That's one. That's ten bucks into the jar. Oh, wait. A tenner. Uh, Tenor's going to CMHA. Ten loonies into the jar. Thanks, Ben. You know what? I'm I'm not going to tell you what to do. Five toonies would work. Let's just talk about our hilariously named money some more. And it, it's cute, too. It's got animals on it. I love our coins. Our coins are cute. I think they're great. Um, Yeah. So, banned books. Every so often, um, I, I, I'd work with people in the past who would say, oh, I'm not allowed to read Harry Potter. Um, or my family wasn't a fan of Harry Potter because of the occult witchcraft nature of it. But I, I don't know. I, I grew up in very liberal circles. I did not. And didn't really come across that until I was older. Oh, I had tons. I wasn't, a, I wasn't allowed to read anything that was considered quote unquote secular. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, uh, the world opened up to me when I became an adult and moved out of my parents' house or, or started listen, uh, illicitly listening to Matchbox 20 when I was 14. Matchbox 20, that's what... Overly identifying with a song like Bent. Wow. Um, I was kind of hoping it would be like Rage Against the Machine, but I love that Matchbox, <laughs> Matchbox 20. Now, that was, <laughs> now I identify with Rage Against the Machine. But you got to understand, the, the hardest thing I'd heard at that point was like Newsboys or, oh or DC Talk. Oh my gosh. I don't really care if you live in Jesus Which is a reference to, as everyone knows, um, Elton John. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, DC uh, Talk took the name of that Jesus Freak from that song title from Elton John's reference to Jesus Freaks and whatever song I'm blanking on now. Jesus Freaks, out in the hmm. It's always great listening to Ben tell an anecdote. <laughs> there was a person who did a thing in the past and it was good. And somebody else referenced it, but yeah, I couldn't listen to anything. I listened to Christian raps, like uh, the brothers, uh, who became Family Force Five and now go by like FF Five or something. I forget. Oh, you wanna you wanna listen to some That's wild like boy shit? Band. Go listen to some of their fun songs. The one about chainsaws is particularly uh, enrapturing. I'm still trying to figure out if we have banned books in Canada or not. I'm I'm reading a CBC list here of challenged books. I found it. Is it. Oh, did you find it? I found a Wikipedia list of books banned by government. And then I scroll down to the Canada section. And it looks like we've got something called Droll Stories by uh, Honoré de Balzac. Oh, uh, really? Which was banned for obscenity in 1914. So not necessarily currently banned. Oh, there you go. But Once Upon a Time banned. So do we have any now banned? I don't think we do. Okay, 2008, there's a book called Noir Canada by Elaine Denon that was banned for sale in Canada following two defamation lawsuits. Okay, I guess that was banned for yeah. defamation. That's... Uh, we have something called The Hoax of the 20th Century, which was banned for hate literature. Hmm. And copies were destroyed by the RCMP as recently as 1995. Oh. I do not believe we have any very modern book lists of like banned books or anything like that. It seems like they're pretty much available and out there. Yeah. Like there's, so I, I, I see that there is a list of challenged books here, mm -hmm. but challenged is not the same as banned. Like None. you can still get them just... Lots of people have take issue. Yeah, and the ch and the challenge doesn't come from the government specifically, as we mentioned. No. It, it comes from uh, specific groups that have their own interests and their own agendas that they're pushing. Um, so you can run into things like, uh, what is it, last summer or this one summer by uh, yeah, this the one Tamakis. summer. I thought yeah. it was this one summer. Yeah, so that's a wild one to see somebody trying to ban. If you've read that book, it's. Uh, it's a strange one for somebody to challenge. Some of the books on here, good grief. That, well, that's looking at this list, like the Goosebumps series by R.L. Stein. Like, what? And probably challenged by Christians. I wasn't allowed to read that. I snuck a couple as a kid, but like, you know, that's in the realm of occult and witchcraft and devils and monsters. That's all, that's all Satan's work. 
What about Star Wars? Apparently Star Wars from the adventures of Luke Skywalker. Well, that's new age. What? Yeah. That's new age shit, you know, because they get their power from the force and not from, mm. you know, God above us all. Jesus. Oh, the wars by Timothy Finley was challenged for sex and violence. But if anyone has ever read not wanted on the voyage, like Timothy Finley's books are excellent, but they are like, there's moments where you're like, what did I just read? And I get like the, um, the, are they heinous? They're graphic. Because generally speaking, the things that I enjoy in most of my content is sex and violence. Like, okay. So I'm going to spoil, here's a spoiler alert just for anybody. Spoilers. Has anybody ever used a spoiler alert on a book before? I there should be because there are people out there that should read this book. Okay, Not Wanted on the Voyage is the story of Noah's Ark told from the perspective of Noah's wife's cat. And it tells the whole story of how God comes to Noah and his family and the family is very I don't know, entitled, kind of gross and crappy and basically there's this really graphic scene where one of um, Noah's son's daughter-in-laws is violently assaulted using a unicorn horn. And that's why the unicorns die and don't come off the ark. And it's just like, it's a, it's a part of the story. I get why that part of the story was there. It's upsetting, but the book is like, again, it's one of those things like, it's a really good book. And it's very disturbing, mm. but a lot like, um, have you ever read Blindness? No. Um, I think I saw or the, yeah, I saw the, the film. film. That's Julianne Moore, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So again, great concept, wonderful book. That thing, that, that book and that movie gave me nightmares. Like it still creeps me out because. I vaguely recall. Oh, um, just brutal. Yeah. My memory of that is just, yeah, they're blind for a while and then they get their sight back at the yes. end. And just the, the concept of like what would happen to humanity if one of our basic senses broke down, how would we respond? And like some people respond quite well and some people don't. Let's leave it at that. Well, our current experience with worldwide tragedy uh, or unforeseen circumstances that people react pretty shittily. Yeah. You get, you get, you get a couple months of, uh, majority camaraderie and then uh, it all falls apart governments use it to take advantage of their situations two months of people banging on pots and then that's it it's not looking good for us if any sort of uh what do they call it apocalyptic event comes our way oh it's gonna be the road i, I think we all agree on that right i think the road looks positive uh, i mean yeah there's but i any survivors it's going to be Mad Max at best. And not the good Mad Max. Like one the of the Mel Brooks. Bad Mad Max. Mel Gibson. I said Mel Brooks. <laughs> Imagine if Mel Brooks made a Mad Max. It would have been very zany. It's all about the merchandising. I used to watch Robin Hood Men in Tights every weekend growing up. And then... The Spaceballs oh. is, is everything. Pizza the Hut. Do we do a Mel Brooks I think episode? we need to. There's a lot to criticize. In oh, stuff, yeah. It's but, terrible. Uh, but there's moments where I got to say the part where they're combing the desert and the one guy that yells out, we ain't, oh, yeah. we, we haven't found shit yet. And I was like, yeah, that's. We, we ain't found, found shit. shit. You know who that is. Right? Is that the guy from Police? That's Tuvok. No, it's not. It's Tuvok. <gasps> it 100% no. is. Uh, I'm 
I regret that I'm blanking on the actor's name right now, but I will rectify that using the magic of Google. Uh, yeah, it's Tim Russ. It 100% is Tim Russ. No. Yeah, he talks about it. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't um, know that. I'm going to confirm it now because I sound fucking confident. And as we oh, know, it isn't the confidence right. of a white man is not worth a whole fucking lot. We're just built in with this shit. We just go around, feel confident, but whatever. God, I'm not wrong for once. Yeah, yeah. So he's the one that we ain't found shit. That's my favorite part of that entire movie. And then he went on to be, I would say, the defining Vulcan in all of Star Trek. Uh, you know, because Spock might have been the trailblazer, but he wasn't even fully Vulcan. He was full Vulcan, yeah. Tim Russ, Tim Russ made Vulcans. He defined Vulcan for the Star Trek world. And he wasn't Star Trek at one like time challenged because of like the interracial... I'm like the interracial kiss between like William Shatner and Nichelle Nichols. I couldn't tell you. Uh, I definitely imagine it got some blowback for that, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it was actually challenged. Let's find out. We're just going to Google things on this show. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Oh, no, this is just becoming we Google. No. Shit. You know what? We're not doing that. We won't do that. You. It's, I, I don't know. I, I really, I don't know where I was going with that one. I'm starting to burn out. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe this is a perfectly fine uh, segue into our interview with uh, Ryan Estrada uh, talking about Band Book Club and uh, Korea and sort of the political climate there under the dictatorship that they they dealt with um, and a whole bunch of other topics, infrastructure we touch on and uh, life in Korea. It's it's a fantastic interview. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, dork, 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 dork. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ryan. Um, I'm wondering if we could just start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. My name is Ryan Estrada, and I've been making comics for many, many years, many, many decades. Uh, I started pitching them to newspapers when I was six years old and uh, kept bothering them until finally when I was 16. They're like, fine, whatever, you can have a weekly comic. And I've just been doing nothing but that since and uh, traveling the world and having adventures and telling stories about them. Uh, and uh, the reason we're here is that I, I worked on a book with my wife called Band Book Club that is about her experiences in 1980s Korea. Yeah, and that, um, it was a really powerful book. Thank you so much for sending along too. And I finally got my copy today, so it's perfect timing. And there's so many things about it. I, I just had no idea that Korea was like that in the 80s. It was such an eye-opening like look into the world because the way that we see Korea right now is through like the K-pop lens and the K-dramas and it seems very progressive and you know a lot of like ahead of a lot of other countries in some ways and so I thought it was incredible that it was like that so recently. And that's what was amazing to me in telling the story is that my experience like I've lived in Korea uh, like most of this century and I it to me that's what it is. It's amazingly progressive, democratic, beautiful place. And uh, you know, I, I knew that it took a lot of work to get there, but to see how much change happened in a space of like 10, 20 years, that a country would make that huge a leap. And it was fascinating to like dig into how did they do that? Like 
from the ground up? Like who was doing what to make that big change happen? And you mentioned you didn't know about all that. I didn't know about all that until like we started working on the book. Cause I, as I told said many times, this is a story about my wife that we've been married for a long time. And I had no idea any of this. She had never mentioned it. Not, not that it was secret. It's just like, why would she mention it? I was just, I was in a book club, whatever. <laughs> and she just casually mentioned being interrogated by the KCIA. And I'm like, wait, you wait, what? Tell me about this. And then that led to a book deal. And I thought, uh, yeah, like we, I just, it was just this weird fact I found out. I posted about it on Twitter and then uh, our publisher saw that tweet and then subtweeted me saying she wanted to publish a book about it. And I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's make a book. And then I had to learn that my wife's whole history and it was fascinating. Yeah, like, wow. Yeah, this isn't where I would have expected this next question to go, but did you find <laughs> uh, your relationship deepened by going through this process? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, number one, just learning more about her history and like learning about all the cool things she did, but also just us coming together to work on something together um, kind of deepened it just because, you know, my wife is not a writer. She's not a comic artist. She has zero interest. It's just this nerdy thing that her husband does that she puts up with. <laughs> and she kind of like uh, accidentally ended up as a, uh, a an author with no, like no, no plan. I just kind of peer pressured her into it, <laughs> but you know, now ha having worked together and then, the other interesting part was when we switched places because when we were writing the English version, it was her talking. It was me at the keyboard typing and asking questions. And then uh, later we got a deal for the Korean version to come out the same day. And she did the, the translation herself. So then we just switched places where she was at the keyboard asking me questions about like, why did you phrase this like this? What is this weird pun that you made that doesn't work in Korean? And so it just like, that whole thing of working together. And then of course me learning like, wow, you did a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love the, the whole punching cops part of it. I was just like, that is quite the, uh, the hobby to have. Mm -hmm. Love it. And maybe that's uh, my next question would be, so how, what was the um, reception like of the graphic novel in Korea? Yeah. I, I was a little worried about it coming out in Korea just because all the stories came from interviews. Hyunsuk reunited with all the old people and talked to them and they were more than happy to be involved. But I was worried that like, are they going to see this book and like feel weird about it? Like we're, even though these things are now celebrated, they're admitting to crimes that they committed. So, you know, is that going to be an issue? Or are they going to regret this later? So that's why we changed all the names we changed the name of the school. We changed the name of the city. You know, we didn't want a, the school to feel insulted. We didn't want a whole city to be like, why are you making us look bad? But then after the book came out, all of those people she interviewed went on their own press tours to telling everyone, I'm the real uni. Uh, <laughs> and then the the university that she went to invited us to like, they they had posters all over the thing that the creators of Band Book Club are coming. And we're like, wow, they read the book. Do they know if the school's not the good guy? This is amazing. And this brings up a huge question. You'd mentioned a bit before that you weren't familiar with this history yourself and, and just the stunning reversal of where they were in the 80s versus where they are now. Um, would it be presumptuous to ask if you came from the US? Yeah, I came from Michigan. Um, and I, I moved to Korea the first time about 2002. 
and, uh, and I traveled around the world for a bit, but I've, I've stuck around Korea quite a bit. So my question would be then, were your sort of expectations of how change can happen in the democratic process sort of colored by your experiences in North America, in the U.S. specifically? Because I, I'm going out here with my own feelings a bit, but it can feel sort of hopeless to try to push change in our current sort of North American system. And ostensibly, they're supposed to be the same. Yeah, I mean, just the feeling of like, this thing is hopeless because, you know, one guy in an office has this much power. There's nothing we can do. Uh, it'll take, you know, maybe maybe in a few generations we'll be able to fix that is the feeling that I always grew up with. But like... Me too. Seeing in Korea, even, you know, learning about what happened in the 80s was one thing, but just the reason I wanted to flash forward in the book to recent times is in 2017, they had a similar situation where the, there was corruption in the presidency and the people wanted to get rid of her, but there was so all these obstacles and it was more of an obstacle in Korea because when, you know, when they quickly rewrote all the rules to, to get rid of a dictator, like they didn't even put any rules about how to impeach a president in there. There's no structure for it, but the people are like, y'all better figure it out. Cause we're going to protest till it's done. And so then finally, even though she had political power, they're like, all right, fine, we impeach her. And then the, the lawmakers had to be like, what does that even mean? How do we do that? They had to make a system to do it. And the people were like, well, we're going to keep protesting until you figure it out. Wow. And then even after they did it, like the Supreme Court had to rule if that was okay because there were no rules. And she, like half the bench, she appointed. And so people are like, well, it's never going to get past them. The streets are still full of thousands of people that are like, well, we're going to be out here till you do it. And then finally, they're like, fine, whatever, she's impeached. Good <laughs> God, just go home. But it happened. So like, like in a, a summer, it was nuts. That's amazing that the generational thing just hits so close to home. Like, you know, we need to educate our children so that we can move things forward in a generation or two. Uh, the idea of such mass protest is just so out there, I think, to most North Americans. That's wild. And then uh, I read that, that particular president who was being impeached was the daughter of the dictator. Is that correct? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Uh, she was the, yeah, it was, it was kind of this, this throwback, like, you know, a, a lot of the older folks were like, yeah, it was a dictatorship, but you know, the economy was doing good and you know, she's not going to do all the same stuff as him. And then she starts doing all the same stuff as him and people just stood up and it was, it was amazing seeing like, everyone out on the streets like if you if you look up the photos online it looks like they're shot from space like you just see candles filling the city it gives me sort of a, a sort of a tingle all over <laughs> thinking about what could happen uh and and kind of brings my memory to like sort of other historical mass protests uh yeah and it's it's just kind of the precedent was there they're like we've gotten we've gotten rid of people before and that was like, we had to get rid of a whole system of government before we could get rid of it. We can do this. And then once that happened, people are like, well, we can do it. And now like, uh, well, I think one just got out, but it was like the three last presidents were all in prison. Like like almost every living Korean president was in, in, in prison recently <laughs> uh, until a little while ago. And it was, it's just in America, it's so often that like, if one little thing, you can't get that done, then everyone's like, oh, well, I guess we can't get anything done. We just need one thing to come through and set a precedent. Yeah, we just need uh, our politicians to be a little bit more worried about jail time. Yeah. Yeah. 
So with the upcoming presidential election, how are people feeling? Because I felt like the conservative candidate, like I was reading a few things and it sounds like he was making, you know, calls to kind of return to the good old days. And it kind of sounded like in some ways a regression in some of the like, you know, the way that Korea scene is so progressive and, you know, very democratic. A part of me was like, so are we looking at round three or four here? Like, what's Mm -hmm. what's the feeling? Yeah, it's uh, they're all out on the streets, uh, you know, campaigning now. Uh, the thing about Korea is they're, they're, it, it's not a two-party system. Like when, when you go down the street and see the campaign posters, there's rules about like they you have to put them all together. So you walk down a street and there's like 14 posters next to each other of all the candidates. And there's some more uh, liberal, some more progressive. And there, there's a system set up so that even if they get votes, it gives their group power even if they don't win. So there's all all of these different this huge spread of of ideas. The party that uh, the Bakane who was impeached was part of still has a lot of power, and they even like right after she was impeached, like they changed their name and were like, "Hey, we're different now." And then like it like split off into like four different groups, and then they come back together. And someone's like, "Well, we're reclaiming that name." So it's hard to say like who is this party, but there's all sorts of ideas, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Which idea? comes together and if if someone crosses the line people know that they're gonna well we'll rise up against you so it's heartening that's kind of an empowering thought like yeah like we've taken you down several times but i'm also like i'm such a fan of k-dramas that a part of me just has this ingrained belief that like korea is a nation of like people who don't take shit like over like they're survivors like from japanese occupation and then the Korean War, like there's just it's a community of people that bounce back and take their nation back in time. So that's kind of like an empowering thing. But it's also I was reading about like the soft power reform and very intentional interjections of funding, kind of like propaganda, but not propaganda, but just trying to like get people to come on side based on aesthetics and likes. And so that's the whole K-pop K-wave of things. And I was like, yeah, that's that's totally worked on me because I have such a positive view of Korea based on the pop culture being put out from um, South Korea right now. And well, actually, for quite some time. So uh, good job on that. <laughs> I, I love So I'm especially a big fan of Korean movies. Uh, it's just this this whole form of cinema where like they take very uh, like cliche American genre ideas but then do them in a way that's like that you would never imagine them being done. And like, they don't even like bother like sticking to a genre. Like it'll switch a genre. Like they just do whatever they want. Yeah. And they like, like, okay, this was a drama two minutes ago. We're going to make it a comedy now. Yeah. You can deal with it. And like kind of even um, the very, like very serious dramas have like this kind of plinky comedic background music. And I just find it so like such a lovely shift. Like, I'm not sure if you've seen like hospital playlist on I'm just going to geek out about some of my favorite K-dramas right now. Um, it would not be the first time we go on a tangent on this show. <laughs> I go on tangents about my love. But uh, the one of the things I loved about this hospital drama, every time I thought like, oh, no, something bad's going to happen. Because if it was like an American TV show, there'd be like a car accident and people would be like sleeping together. In the- not in this. They go for lunch and everything's OK. And I love it. <laughs> I'm just holding myself back from going on a two-hour tangent about Korean movies because awesome. I could do it. Oh, uh, okay. I'm not going to talk about my love of Korean dramas anymore. We're going to move past that. 
<laughs> no, you got it out there. I think that's important, though. I was going to try to steer us back onto uh, our, our theoretical topic, which was the idea of, of banned books, I think, specifically was, uh, you know, you write a book like this. And I found myself initially, because of my lack of knowledge of Korea and its history, actually questioning where in time this was taking place. And like, is this like, and then when I finally sort of realized that we're in the past a bit, like the dawning realization that it had, had been this brutal was just such a, a bucket of cold water on me. And, uh, and just trying to get my head around this idea that in the eighties, there was this much um, sort of literature that was off limits. And, and that was just, you know, this small sort of portion of, of sort of the censorship and restrictions that were going on in the country. Uh, so it got me looking into, uh, we're from Canada, so sort of where we are right now with censorship. Our list isn't huge, apparently, as far as book censorship goes. Uh, it looks like there's 10 titles yeah. that, I can, uh, that I, can, I can find out. But they all seem to sort of come from a place of hate speech, generally, which is something that mm -hmm. this country doesn't generally want to stand as a sort of policy um, and I'm just wondering sort of like where the censorship, if, if there is still censorship in Korea, or if as a result of what has happened, if uh, it's more of a, you know, we allow literature and information freely, and it's up to you to sort of like, read, engage and understand what isn't appropriate, or, you know, what sort of views, you know, you need to guard yourself from, I guess, for lack of a better term. So I'm curious where they're at now with that sort of thing, or if they still, you know, maintain sort of structures to to keep certain information away from people. Yeah, I mean, in, in Korea today, like, um, like there's there's internet censorship. Like any any porn is banned. You're not allowed to look at porn on the internet. Um, but the, I mean, the like ideas thing, and also of course, uh, anything that they consider North Korean propaganda is uh, is heavily restricted. But it's you know the you know ideas are are much more open what i found fascinating is that for a while one of the only actual banned books was the autobiography of chandu huan who is the president in banned book club because he was sentenced to death for war crimes and then they let him off and one of the restrictions was he was not allowed to write a book but he wrote one anyway so his his book was banned which i found um, and we're like now, Hyunsuk's book is out and his book is banned. So how about that? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's wild how much banned books have become an issue like since this book came out. Like when we were working on it, it's like, well, here's a weird bit of history people might be interested in that I don't know if they'll relate to it. And then after it came out, it's just, oh, this is incredibly relevant again because this has been this huge wave of yeah. um, trying to, to ban books and it's been wild. Yeah. We're dealing with that right now in North America. Um, specifically, is it Texas? Oh yeah. It's going through their, their current banning of books. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I really do feel like we're facing down sort of a, uh, a very strong and aggressive form of uh, sort of progressive and, and uh, puritanical approach to education and, and information in North America. Yeah, and it's a very, it's a very organized political movement to try and, like make certain ideas feel like they're ideas you're not supposed to have and uh, give power to certain types of people. Uh, and it's, it's really sad that it's, it's kind of 
history is repeating itself. And it's weird seeing like clips on the news sounding exactly like things I heard from my research of like living under dictatorship. Yeah. And I always wonder too about that. So if we say that we don't want to ban books, then are we okay with some kids getting into like hate literature, like the whole white supremacy thing? Because you don't like for the hypocritical, you don't want to ban the books. And so that means that all of the books are out there or the concepts are out there for kids and young people and just vulnerable folks out there who feel disenfranchised to kind of latch on to a community. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm really torn about that. Well, what I think the difference is, is hate speech should, should be looked down on and should not be read out of context. Yeah. Um, but I think that what, what should be happening is people should not give platforms to this type of speech. Like a lot of people calling censorship are talking about like, you know, podcast networks or publishers or like a publisher should absolutely be like, no, I'm not going to spend half a million dollars to give you this platform. I'm not going to use our servers to give you this platform. But I don't, you know, if that per, if that person wants to spew their hate in a way that they control, I don't think someone should stop that because I would rather know that someone is a white supremacist, have that availability out there than have it hidden and like accidentally like have them on TV talking about policies without that context that they're a white supremacist. And I was thinking about if I were a parent and what would I do if my kids came home with something hateful, I wouldn't, if, if I, if you say to that kid, don't read that, you're not allowed to read it. They're going to like hide behind under the covers and see what the fuss is about and not have the context to understand why it's wrong. I would be like, Oh, you want to talk about this book? I'll talk about this book. This is what I think about this book. <laughs> Why don't, why don't you read it and look for this? Here is Here are some examples of the type of language people use to get across hate. And, you know, let me know if you see something like that in the book. I think it's important for that information to be able to be out there so that we can have the context we need. Just like in Band Book Club, the kid that went to jail, and this was a real person, went to jail for reading the autobiography of Kim Il-sung from North Korea. He was completely against Kim Il-sung, but he's like, I want to understand this context because our leaders are saying they're different, but they're saying the exact same things. So I think that's why it's important to have that stuff out there. Just don't give it a platform and don't support it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, especially because uh, the context of the U.S. being, uh, you know, free speech, often to almost a fetishization in my experience for some people, but like our context from Canada is that we actually have hate speech laws um, that do actually limit speech in certain aspects. Now you can talk about Mein Kampf. It can be taught in schools. It can be talked about, but you aren't allowed to sell it in bookstores. Um, you can't just readily go out and grab certain books. One of the other ones that's banned is Lolita. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting, the context of, uh, of growing up with the idea of sort of hate speech laws versus um, a place where that doesn't exist and uh, the application of those things. Um, I generally see a limiting of speech that's considered hate to be, to be a positive, um, but not in the context of restricting people from reading certain things, but being held accountable for published material or, you put out a podcast that's, uh, you know, trying to incite hate against a specific group, you can be, you can be punished for that. And uh, 
I don't know if it's just my context from being from Canada, but that I generally consider to be a worthwhile endeavor to limit things that can cause harm to other people um, in that sort of context. Yeah, I, I definitely think that consequences for hate speech are great. And it's too, too many people call uh, consequences censorship, and that's not what censorship is. No, it's very fundamentally misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, if you, say, if you say hatred and you lose your job, awesome, you shouldn't have that job. That's not what censorship is. You can say whatever you want and then deal with the consequences of it if society wants to place those consequences on you. Uh, and I hope we live in a society that wants to place consequences on people who spew hatred. Um, and so I, I, I really wish people would stop calling that censorship because that's not what censorship is. Yeah, it's a very specific thing and one that you address uh, very clearly in, in, in this book, Banned Book Club. Uh, it's the government uh, removing that specific availability for people um, undemocratically. And it's, uh, it's very specifically that thing and not, not a lot of other things that it's been conflated with lately. Yeah. yeah, well, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about him, but there's a, a podcaster recently that people have been trying to get removed from a, a big network. I can't imagine who that might be. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's saying, well, well, how come you guys want, you know, you're complaining about books ban, but you want his speech ban. I don't want his speech ban. I'm, I'm glad to know that this is what he thinks, but um, he can make a podcast and put it on the, he can put it on that same network. I can put a podcast on that network. They specifically gave him hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund it. And then every time you open that app, they tell you to subscribe to that podcast. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different thing. That's, that's not, you know, just giving a platform that's funding his platform and pushing his platform. That's not saying, Hey, don't do that is not censorship. Removing him from a private company that, uh, you know, provides podcasts isn't even censorship. Uh, making a business decision, if anything, mm -hmm. should appeal to uh, the masses out there that really love capitalism because uh, that's what it is. It's a business decision at that point. Yeah. And if they removed him, his podcast would still be there because they just pick up RSS feeds. He can make an RSS feed. Yeah. Nobody's going to stop him. Yeah, that's a very yeah. good point. Uh, you know, I think the three of us could probably agree that we hope his, his podcast someday ends someday soon. I was really curious. What's your favorite part of the book? I, my favorite part of the book is uh, one of the things that made me really excited to read it was the, when, uh, when the, the KCIA called Hyunsuk's house. Also in the book, uh, you know, she lived there. At, at the time it actually happened, she didn't actually live with her parents, which made it wilder, but we just simplified it for the book. And uh, it, this, is, this is the real thing that happened is the KCIA happened to call Hyunsuk's parents while she happened to be there in between them and the phone. And she picked it up for them just to be helpful. And it was the KCIA looking for her. Wow. She didn't want her parents to know so she just pretended like she was talking to a boy that she liked from school and like, hey, you want to hang out at the coffee shop? <laughs> just so her parents didn't know that she was talking to the police who were trying to call them. And like the awkwardness of that situation, like that's everything to me is just like, you know, you, you know, you can make a story about history. You can make a story about about fascism to have that personal detail of an awkward situation that like it'd be the same thing if it were like. 
you know, any other awkward situation, but it happens to be the, you know, militarized intelligence wing of a fascist dictator. It makes it funny for me. (laughs) It was a a very um, humanizing portion of the story. Um, If there's anything that I felt like I wanted out of the book that I I, I felt like maybe I, I wish I could get more of was sort of the... Because, you know, it's a real life story, but I was hoping for that sort of like manufactured uh, narrative comeuppance of the villain. Um, And I know you get that moment where uh, he gets punched uh, during that sort of last protest. But I really, 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 he was so evocatively portrayed uh, Agent K.O. Agent Oak. Agent Oak. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) I got it so mixed up. Um, (laughs) Just put those two letters in the wrong order. But he was so evocatively portrayed as just such a... um, like a human person, you know, that scene where he's talking with his family on the phone and then just turns around and starts viciously attacking, that sort of evil of career, you know, people willing to do terrible things to others because that's their job is just chilling to me. And I really, I really would have loved to see some sort of uh, satisfying comeuppance to him. Um, but I appreciate that that is not necessarily how real life went. Yeah, well, one of the things we couldn't fit in the book that actually happened in that we, the, the guy that uh, whom was based on told us is that like decades later when Korea's, you know, democracy, everything's fixed. He was just walking down the street and he saw that cop walking toward him. The same cop that had said, um, if things change one day, I hope you can forgive me. Uh, he just walked and looked up and like, they just made eye contact and you could tell they both were like, Oh yeah, that's uh, that's that guy. And then they just both just look down and walk past each other because they're like, I don't want to talk to you. Wow. Oh, so he just not locked up, hey? Just living his life. And I read a couple of reviews too. And I really like, I read a review before I read the book. And then the review was talking about the importance of it being like a coming of age story. And when I read it, I was like, yeah, but it's, it's what really got to me was that generational gap, like the mother daughter dynamic in any kind of like YA type book is always like such a big part of it. But just thinking about how different mother and daughter are in that scenario. And especially like in a culture that's so different than like in North America where like family is so, so central. That was something that I really, really, I loved. And to see that mother daughter relationship, kind of the arc and come full circle was so lovely. And so I'm, I'm curious to know about anything more like, I, I hope that this is an okay question to ask, like if your wife's parents got to read the book and um, if they had any thoughts on it, anything like that. Yeah. Uh, one of the most amazing moments was after the book came out um, in the book, Hyunsuk's mom and dad kind of find the, the paperwork and they, without it really acknowledging what happened, they kind of understand. And there's this moment where they hug in reality, they found out when the book came out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, we just, I, I wanted to put a little subtle moment of like redemption because I didn't want to make a, I didn't want to make my mother-in-law the villain of a book. Yeah. That's probably a really smart choice. (laughs) Yeah. So we, we put that in there and then, uh, we, she read the book and we did interview them to get all the stories from them. We found out from interviewing and they knew what we were working on. And then she read it. And there was one day that Hyunsuk was doing, uh, um, another online talk about her book it was for uh asian american book month and she was streaming it live 
And like an hour before the stream, her mom just showed up at her house from another city. She took the bus in and didn't tell us and like showed up to make lunch. And, and Hyunsuk's like, oh, I got to do this thing. Like, hang on. And she was sitting there and then doing her talk in, in English. And then her mom just kind of like casually walked into the frame and stood there and then told Hyunsuk she was proud of her and walked away. And it was the most touching thing. It was amazing. That's lovely. That's absolutely heartwarming. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, and I'm such a dork about this and I, I hope it's okay to ask. Can you talk about your drawing process? Like how the full like start to finish? Like, do you, are you a digital person? Do you do the thumbnails? Like what's your, I like that part. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I did not draw a band book club that was uh, illustrated by an artist named Go Hyung Ju, but I am an artist and I am illustrating the next two books, the sequels. Um, yeah, I, I still work on paper. Um, I, I'm very old school that way. I've tried to draw digitally and it just doesn't work for me. But what I do, I do a kind of weird process where before I draw, I, I create like what I call ghost pages, which I, I create the pages of the book with the panels and the text. And then I print that and then draw into that and then rescan it um, so that I know the layout and what size everything has to be. And yeah, so that I'm going to be taking on those duties for the next couple of books because we really wanted a Korean artist to draw the first book because it's so much about Korean history. Mm -hmm. But the next two books are more about personal uh, situations. And so we, we thought that that's better for me to do that, you know, because I live with Hyunsook. She can be there with me. And, and she's co-writing those with you again? Uh, yeah, yeah. Acting as a, as a director. That's awesome. Yeah, so you're working on two new books coming out. Do you have any, like, ETAs on those ones? Yep. The next book comes out uh, in fall of 2024. Uh, it's called No Rules Tonight. It's coming out from Penguin Workshop. And yeah, it's kind of, it's a, it's a standalone book, but it follows Band Book Club. And it's about, uh, we, we took a lot of stories that we couldn't fit into Band Book Club um, of kind of school trips that uh, Ken Six groups took. And we combined them all together into a story of what happened on, on one night. It originally started as a Band Book Club Christmas special that is now <laughs> becoming a whole thing. But it's a Christmas special where no one knows what Christmas is. Because uh, it was a whole different holiday in Korea back then because of the curfew. Uh, you know, the dictator said everyone had to be home by midnight, but the only exceptions were holidays. But holidays, there's very specific family rules. But since the quarantine was put into place by the U.S. military, there was one night that was a Western holiday, which was Christmas. So Christmas became known as the one night for debauchery. <laughs> Because you didn't have a curfew and you, parents didn't expect you to come home. So there's a there's a lot of uh, people of that age that uh, have September birthdays because everybody was out getting wild uh, on Christmas Eve. So it's about that night. And what do you do if you have one night of freedom? Oh, I love that concept. That's awesome. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Yeah. So a friend of mine, um, she quit Canada. She's moving across the world. She's bumming around Europe very nervously right now but um, she's winding up uh, she's got a job at a school in uh, Korea and what is your favorite part of being you know a, a, an implant into Korea what do you love about the country I absolutely love living in Korea just first as, as dorky of a thing as it is to say I love about a country is just infrastructure oh, I love it yeah like everything is just so like I 
I can go anywhere I want in the city for like a buck fifty, like a buck twenty-five uh, within an hour. I can go anywhere I want in the country within five hours for like thirty bucks. What? Like, and if I wanted to, to splash and go a bullet train, I could pay like an extra twenty bucks and be there in two hours. Um, it's just so well, like so well organized. The city invests so much money in so many great things about art and supporting artists. Um, like across the street from me, there's a center for cartoonists where uh, they give free office space to cartoonists to like help build the industry. There's a cinema center where they have the world's largest film festival. Wow. And they you can check out free. Like if you want to make a movie, you just go fill out a form. They'll give you, you can check out a free camera and microphone. And it's just, they have so much support into things that, like they want to that they want to support and it it makes all these amazing communities like for me being part of all these different art communities that have the resources to to try things out and experiment it's just i love living here i love the people i love the kindness and i love that infrastructure uh so when ben and i leave canada and come to korea can we live with you until we get on our feet is that okay sure thing we got a we got a a balcony you can perfect yeah throw some blankets on (laughs) That, that sounds amazing. I, uh, I, I'm going to stay here until things are the way I want them to be. That's my stubborn nature. Uh, until we also have, you know, cartoonist centers across the street from people. That's amazing. And adequately pay into public uh, transportation and arts. Not me. I'm going to jump ship. Okay. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Is there anything that you miss about the States? Um, I mean, I miss my family, of course. Uh, I'm gonna... Fair, yeah. In, a, in about a uh, week, I'm going to be heading back uh, for a couple months to to see some family. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the I'm I'm super happy to be living here, um, and I do miss, of course, uh, I I did miss being able to like do library visits and things about my books. But now all that's done on Zoom anyway, so yeah, that works well. <laughs> and you said you're going on a bike trip pretty soon. That's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I there's um. Another thing I love about Korea is that they've made bike routes that travel the entire country, but like you can go from Busan to Seoul and never see a car. And if you, if you ride your bike across the country, they give you a medal. Whoa. Yeah. So I got my cross country medal. And now if I do all the side trips, I get my full country medal. Oh, wow. That is so cool. If you send us a picture, we'll put it on the Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. We'll add it into the show notes for the episode. Yeah. I know we didn't necessarily stay on topic with banned books, but I, I, I found this conversation fascinating and interesting, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you very much. I hope people uh, check out Banned Book Club. We have another book coming out on the topic later this year called Occulted. That is about, that's also from my Iron Circus comics. It's, I co-wrote it with a friend of mine who grew up in a cult in California it was just down the road from Heaven's Gate and during the same period that that went down wow. and about how like she was kind of brought into it as, as a small child and then how sneaking into an abandoned library and reading banned books was how she got the information she needed to get out. So awesome. look out for that. Then look out for No Rules Tonight. And then uh, the top secret third banned book club book that's coming out the year after that. Oh, awesome. So many more banned book books to come. <laughs> We're very much looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Dork Matters. If you like the podcast, subscribe, give a rating and tell a friend about us. If you are a fellow dork and have a dork issue that you think we need to discuss, tell us on our social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. You can also check out our original art and other content from Ben and myself. We'd like to say a big thank you to Yabra for the use of our theme song Dance off of their Astral EP, as well as a thank you to Jess Schmidt for producing and editing our podcast. Thanks, Jess. Dork Matters. This podcast is created on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Nations, which includes the Siksiga, the Bigani, and the Gaina. We also acknowledge the Stony Nakoda Nation, Sutena, and Métis Region 3. Dork Matters is a proud member of the Alberta Public Radio Podcast Network.